Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our foot and ankle lecture series. In this lecture, we will discuss two specific disease processes and their associated deformity and conditions. Today, we will be focusing on the manifestations of diabetes on the foot and ankle and acquired spastic deformities. So let's begin with the horrible downward spiral that is diabetic foot disease. Diabetic foot ulcers are far and away the number one reason that an individual will require a lower extremity amputation, and it all begins with too much glucose. Uncontrolled elevated glucose levels leads to glycosylization and damage to an abundance of structures throughout the body. But of particular concern for us is damage to the nerves and blood vessels. Peripheral neuropathy leads to loss of protective sensation. Loss of feeling allows sustained pressure, leading to skin breakdown, necrosis, and eventually ulcer formation. This occurs with sacral decubitus ulcers and paraplegics, and the same is true in the development of diabetic ulcers. Furthermore, autonomic dysfunction causes sweat gland malfunction and the development of dry, coarse, injury-prone skin. The second hit in diabetes comes in the form of damage to the microvasculature. Not only does the loss of protective sensation allow for ulcer formation to occur, but peripheral vascular disease also decreases blood flow, which creates a challenging environment for wound healing. Remember, however, that the loss of protective sensation is the number one risk factor for developing a diabetic foot ulcer. About 10% of diabetics will develop a foot ulcer. Prevention of ulcer formation should be of utmost priority for diabetic patients. Deep ulcer formation is the number one risk factor for an eventual lower extremity amputation. Patients should be instructed to check their feet on a daily basis to look for any signs of impending ulcer formation. They should also be utilizing wide toe box shoes with custom insoles and be particularly wary when beginning to use new footwear or if they attempt to trim their own toenails. Ulcers are generally painless. Examination of the diabetic foot includes checking for protective sensation with a Sims-Weinstein monofilament test and checking for palpable or dopplerable dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial artery pulses. If an ulcer is present, it should be probed with a sterile swab to check to see if it has eroded to bone. Ulcers that probe to bone can be assumed to have developed into osteomyelitis. The range of motion at the ankle to assess for Achilles tightness must also be assessed via the silver scold test especially in the case of a forefoot ulcer. The silver scold test assesses the cause of posterior heel cord tightness. The ankle dorsiflexion is assessed with the knee flexed and straight. If the dorsiflexion is the same in both positions, then the gastroc and soleus are tight. If the dorsiflexion improves with knee flexion, in other words, when the gastroc is relaxed, then the tightness is isolated to the gastroc. Ulcers can be graded according to the Wagner classification system, ranging from grades 0 to 5. Grade 1 is a superficial ulcer, grade 3 probes down to bone and is consistent with osteomyelitis, and grade 5 exhibits extensive gangrene and warrants an amputation. As with anything, the more information you gather against your enemy, in this case the ulcer, the better prepared you are to do battle with it. It is therefore in your best interest to assess all of your diabetic foot patient's healing potential and try to optimize any deficient parameters. Laboratory markers that can help gauge healing potential include a serum albumin level of greater than 3 mg per deciliter and a total lymphocyte of greater than 1500 per cubic millimeter are predictive of wound healing. Blood flow to the ulcer is also necessary for wound healing. This can be assessed via transcutaneous oxygen pressure or an ankle brachial index. 
a transcutaneous oxygen pressure greater than 30 millimeters of mercury or an ABI of greater than 0.45 indicates good healing potential. ABIs must be interpreted cautiously, however. Calcifications within the arteries can lead to a falsely elevated ankle brachial index measurement. Plain radiographs range from normal to horrific Charcot arthropathy, which we will address in a few minutes. An MRI can be helpful to evaluate for any abscess formation in the presence of an ulcer. An MRI is not necessary to evaluate for osteomyelitis if the ulcer probes down to bone. If you can touch the bone through the wound bed, it is presumed infected. End of story. There is no real reason to swab a superficial wound. It's going to come back polymicrobial. The only true way to obtain specific cultures to tailor antibiotics accordingly in the setting of osteomyelitis is to obtain deep cultures or a bone biopsy, and even then the cultures may still grow multiple bacteria. As with practically everything, Staph aureus is the most common bacteria culture from diabetic wounds. Now how are we going to treat diabetic foot ulcers? Well, that depends on the degree of ulcer formation, its location, and any underlying bony pathology. Superficial ulcers, so Wagner grades 1 and 2, can be treated with local wound care and offloading of the ulcer, possibly with an orthotic shoe or total contact casting. Different orthotic shoe configurations can offload the ulcer, and which sole is chosen will depend on the ulcer location. Total contact casting works by offloading the ulcer, giving it a chance to heal by preventing any high-pressure areas from forming on the skin or the ulcer. Cast application is contraindicated in the setting of an active infection. Following ulcer resolution, the patient is typically transitioned into a Charcot Restraint Orthotic Walker, or Crow Boot for short, and finally into custom-molded diabetic shoes. A crow walker functions in the same capacity as a total contact cast, however it can be removed which is helpful for skin checks and daily hygiene. Patients with grade 3 disease or an ulcer that probes to bone is consistent with osteomyelitis and will require surgical debridement of the infected tissues and bone, wound care, IV antibiotics, and orthotics to offload the ulcer. After the infected phase is over, they too will be transitioned into a total contact casting to allow the ulcer to heal and eventually wide toe box custom molded shoes. If the patient has Charcot arthropathy with collapse and bony prominence formation, they may require an ostectomy to remove the prominence causing the ulcer. With forefoot ulcers and a tight heel cord, a tendo Achilles lengthening should also be performed to further offload the area of pressure. The tendon Achilles lengthening has been shown to decrease the rate of forefoot ulcer recurrence. Heel ulcers with an associated calcaneal osteomyelitis may require a partial calconectomy. Finally, forefoot ulcers that have progressed to an active infection with ascending gangrene may require various levels of amputation, including individual digits, rays, transmetatarsal amputations, a Chopar or Syme amputation, or below knee amputation. Transmetatarsal amputations and the Chopar amputation, which is an amputation at the level of the talonavicular and calcaneocuboid joint, will require a tendino-Achilles lengthening as the unopposed pull of the gastrocnemius tendon can lead to an Aquinas deformity. This can be corrected in a Chopar amputation by transferring the insertion of the tibialis anterior to the talar neck in conjunction with the tendo-Achilles lengthening. A syme amputation is an amputation at the level of the tibio-talar joint and involves an ankle disarticulation with resection of the malleoli. The weight-bearing surface of the joint becomes the heel pad and its viability is crucial for success of the operation. Patients must have a palpable posterior tibial artery in order to be candidates for a syme amputation. The heel pad must also be securely fixed in place to ensure an optimal outcome. 
All right, so losing protective sensation can obviously cause some significant problems. Not only does the patient run the risk of developing diabetic foot ulcers, but with repetitive microtrauma to the joint, the patient may go on to develop a neuropathic arthropathy, or in the case of today's lecture, a Charcot foot. However, this is also known to occur in the knees and shoulders. What is the most common cause of neuropathic arthropathy in the shoulder? Syringomyelia, a syrinx in the cervical spine. The loss of pain sensation in proprioception is thought to lead to sustained microtrauma that leads to bony destruction. Furthermore, as a second hit in diabetes, peripheral neuropathy causes autonomic nervous system dysfunction, leading to increased blood flow to the area and further bony resorption. Patients with a diabetic Charcot foot will present with swelling and some difficulty with ambulation. About half will complain of pain at the foot and ankle, while the other half will be relatively pain-free. On examination, the foot will appear swollen, erythematous, and possibly warm to the touch. An interesting testable point about the associated erythema is that with elevation of the foot, the erythema will dissipate to some degree. This is important that when it comes to evaluating a diabetic foot, we are constantly worried about the presence of infection. If attempting to discern whether the erythema is due to infection or if it is a result of the autonomic dysfunction in venous pooling, elevating the foot can be a helpful tool. The erythema will generally be persistent in infection and dissipate if it is due to a Charcot foot. A thorough neurovascular exam should be performed including a Semmes-Weinstein monofilament test for protective sensation and for evaluating for palpable or dopplerable pulses. The foot should also be evaluated for the presence of any bony prominences that may place the patient at risk for ulcer formation. Radiographs of the foot and ankle can show varying degrees of bony destruction with rather impressive obliteration of the normal foot architecture in some extreme cases. Any prominence that warrants resection can be appreciated with plain films. If there is a concern for osteomyelitis, then a bone scan or MRI can be a useful adjuvant. Bone scans may light up positive in both osteomyelitis and arthropathy. However, a tagged white blood cell scan will only be positive in the presence of osteomyelitis. ESR and white blood cell count can be elevated in both disease processes and are generally not that useful for differentiating between the two. Diabetic Charcot foot and ankle destruction is generally classified according to the Eichenholz classification. Broadly, this is broken down into three phases, including fragmentation, coalescence, and reconstruction. The fragmentation phase is defined as pain, erythema, swelling, and bony disruption. It is during this phase that many patients present. The initial swelling found during the fragmentation phase begins to remit as the coalescence phase begins. During coalescence, the bone debris begins to resorb and fragments begin to consolidate. The final phase is reconstruction in which there is no soft tissue swelling and the bone fragments have consolidated into fixed pieces. Let's talk about how we treat these patients now. First line treatment includes the same progression of immobilization that we mentioned during the diabetic ulcer section. In general, patients are initially placed into a total contact cast during the acute fragmentation phase. This cast should be changed every two to four weeks and generally needs to be utilized for two to four months. Following the acute inflammatory phase, patients may be transitioned from the total contact cast into a crow or Charcot restraint orthotic walker and eventually into a diabetic shoe. The crow boot is utilized around the beginning of the coalescence phase and diabetic shoes during the reconstruction phase. Again, these shoes have custom molded insoles, wide and tall toe boxes and may require a special orthotic sole depending on the existence of any bony prominences. A double rocker sole is helpful for alleviating pressure over a plantar midfoot bony prominence. If the patient develops soft tissue compromise despite aggressive and meticulous conservative management, they may require surgical intervention. This includes resection of any bony prominences, 
Osteotomies designed to reconstruct the normal foot architecture and tendon Achilles lengthening to minimize plantar flexion force from the heel cord and posterior calf musculature. If all else fails, an amputation may be in order, especially in the face of an uncontrollable infection. The more proximal the amputation, the greater the energy expenditure required during normal ambulation. The goal is to preserve the greatest limb length as possible, which is typically dictated by the vascular status and proximal extent of an infection. The exception to this rule is the syme amputation, which is more energy efficient than a midfoot amputation. The success of a syme amputation is dictated based upon the stability of the heel pad and an open posterior tibial artery. Now would be a good time as any to review lower extremity amputations. The principle that metabolic demand during gait increases with more proximal amputation levels has been tested in the past. The exception to this is the syme amputation, which has lower metabolic demands than midfoot amputations. Amputations secondary to vascular disease have a higher net increase in energy expenditure than amputations at the same level due to traumatic disease. A traumatic baloney amputation results in about a 25% increase in demand, while a vascular baloney amputation results in about a 40% increase. Transfemoral amputation energy expenditure increase varies between 70 and 100% versus baseline levels. Children are a bit more resilient to increased demands of amputation and can maintain normal walking speed and equivalent energy expenditure all the way up through a through-knee amputation. In children, joint disarticulations or covering the amputation site with an epiphyseal cap is preferable to prevent bone overgrowth. The bone overgrowth occurs via intramembranous ossification, which is another testable fact. How about some testable information on specific amputations? Lisfranc amputations at the level of the tarsal metatarsal joint may develop an equinovarus deformity from the unopposed pole of the tibialis posterior and gastroc. This can be prevented by maintaining the insertion of the peroneus brevis on the fifth metatarsal. Chopar amputations, or an amputation at the level of the talonavicular and calcaneocuboid joints, may go on to develop an equinus contracture. This too can be avoided by performing a simultaneous tendinoachilles lengthening and transfer of the tibialis anterior to the tailor neck. Below knee amputations have excellent results overall. Typically, the amputation level is approximately 12 to 15 centimeters below the joint line. If medial and lateral soft tissue redundancies, also known as dog ears, develop when the posterior flap is raised, it is important to resist the urge to trim them down as this may injure the saphenous and sural arteries, thereby compromising blood flow to the flap. With transfemoral amputation, it is important to make the cut about 12 centimeters above the joint surface. This leaves room for an appropriately sized prosthesis. It is also important to perform an adductor myodesis for an above-knee amputation, otherwise the patients will go on to develop an abductor flexor deformity, causing difficulty with gait. Overall, in a trauma setting, the degree of soft-tissued injury will be the driving force behind the necessity for an amputation versus a reconstruction. Furthermore, a lack of plantar sensation does not relegate a patient to an amputation. It depends more on the degree of soft-tissue injury as to whether a reconstruction can still be attempted. All right. So that's the basics of diabetic foot disease, charcoarthropathy, and just a brief overview of amputations. Be able to recognize and manage diabetic ulcers. Know the risk factors for development and the signs associated with poor healing potential. Review the phases of diabetic neuropathic joint disease and how to manage each phase. This section is rather straightforward and is frequently found on examinations, so a firm understanding of the material will help to gain a few extra points on exams. Let's finish up this talk briefly by focusing on another common acquired foot deformity secondary to neurologic dysfunction. Specifically, we will address spastic equinovarus foot deformity. 
Spastic equinovarus foot deformity typically occurs following a stroke or traumatic brain injury. These diseases result from an upper motor neuron injury causing overactivity of the gastroc and tibialis anterior resulting in equinus deformity and varus respectively. As with most upper motor neuron disorder, these patients will present with rigid tone and hyperreflexia. Patients that develop equinovarus deformity following a stroke should be managed non-operatively for a period of up to 18 months. During this time period, patients may regain some degree of neurologic dysfunction, lessening the need for surgical intervention. Non-operative management includes physical therapy for stretching and strengthening, as well as Botox injections to decrease muscle tone. What is the mechanism of action of a Botox injection? Botulinum toxin blocks the presynaptic release of acetylcholine inhibiting nerve transmissions at the motor end plates. Patients with a spastic equinovarus foot deformity should also be placed in an ankle foot orthosis to limit the progression of the deformity. After 18 months, it is unlikely that the patient's neurologic status will continue to improve significantly. If the equinovarus deformity remains severe, causing dysfunction, then they may be a candidate for a split anterior tibialis tendon transfer and Achilles tendon lengthening. The split anterior tibialis tendon transfer, or SPLAT procedure, the lateral half of the tibialis anterior is transferred, cuboid, and fixed into place. This redirects some of its pull, correcting the varus deformity. This is typically done in conjunction with an Achilles tendon lengthening procedure to correct the equinus deformity. The important concept to remember in dealing with a spastic equinovarus deformity is that patience by both the physician and the family is required during the initial management to allow for neurologic recovery. If the patient fails non-operative management and bracing, then the procedure of choice is a SPLAT procedure with Achilles tendon lengthening. That concludes our talk on diabetic foot disease, arthropathy, a brief overview of some of the common amputations in spastic equinovarus foot deformity. In the next sections, we will focus specifically on trauma in the foot and ankle. As always, please check back to the lecture for modifications and additions. Thanks for listening.